Let's take our Bibles this morning and open them together as we return to our study of the book of Revelation. It has been for us, uh, I hope at least, a glorious time together over the past several months as we have witnessed the unfolding of future history, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the full manifestation of Jesus Christ in His full glory. And it has been put within the heart of every man, as we have learned, to wonder about the future. When we think about humanity, when you talk with humanity, mankind attempts to find out about the future from all kinds of sources, and all of those sources know nothing of the future. But the Christian does know the future. Why? Because we know the only one and true God who has created all things and who has planned the future. We know the truth about the future. We know what the future is. And we have been seeing the complete unfolding of God's redemptive plan from history past to history future through His Son. And now we have come to those final scenes in our study. We have been watching these scenes unfold even back as they began in chapter 19 and verse 11 with the words, I saw. And over the course of the chapters as we have gone from chapter 19 verse 11 up to where we are, this word, I saw, continues to come forth. And there's ten times that John says that. And the last Lord's Day we were introduced to the eighth and ninth time that he said that beginning in chapter 21. And I want to read these verses for us again because we just began to get into them last week and I want to try to finish them up this week before our time around the Lord's table. Follow along in Revelation chapter 21 beginning in verse 1. John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He shall dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be among them. And He shall wipe, every, wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be death. There shall no longer be mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving, and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death. What we're looking at here is the eternal state. We have 
seen the tribulation and all of the judgment that God unleashes during those horrific seven years. We saw that unfold from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19. We have seen the millennial kingdom as Christ comes and rules on earth for a thousand years in the current Jerusalem in chapter 20. Now, in the chronological order of God's redemptive plan, we are here introduced to the eternal state. The eternal state, by the way, is that place where all of human creation is moving toward. We live now not in the eternal state, but the eternal state is coming and all of human creation is moving toward that point and some will move to it to an eternal hell separated from the uh, uh, semblance of any of God's grace and any of God's mercy separated from God in their place of hell and others will be eternally in bliss with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that the Christian is to live here and now in our days in anticipation for the eternal state, in anticipation for that time that we spend with Jesus Christ. This is the location and destiny of our eternal hope. This is where Christ will dwell with us, and so that makes this a very important place. We think life on this earth is a long time. Some of us live a hundred plus years, and yet that is but a vapor, as Scripture says, according to eternity. And I believe far too often we get ourselves mixed up in our own minds and in our own thinking. We live our lives here as if this is our heaven, as if this is the place where we want to remain, as if this is the place we want to perpetuate our life ongoing but that is not the exhortation by God for us or to us we are to live as the Bible says you are to live as dead men we are to live here and now in the world and to the things of the world as if we are dead and we are to anticipate the things of our glorious future with Jesus Christ now you may remember last time that we said we could characterize this eternal place with one word and that word was new the word new why because all things in the eternal state are categorically new in other words it will be nothing like this place this place is a place of death this place is a place of sin this place is a place of unbelieving this place is a place of lies and and uh, all the categories of verse 8 the cowardly the abominable the murderers the immoral persons the sorcerers idolaters that's what characterizes this place the new heaven the new earth will be nothing like this place specifically john sees and describes here in these verses four features for us of this eternal state that ought to cause us Those who know Jesus Christ by faith, it ought to cause us to anticipate this all the more. It ought to cause us to really desire to be with Christ. And I just want to uh, quickly review the first two and then get into the last ones for us. First, this is a completely new creation. Verse 1 says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
But the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There is no longer sea. The first earth passes away. That means it, it, it goes totally out of sight. We talked about this last Lord's Day. This one that we see here, this new heaven, this new earth, is one that is totally new in character and in every way. It is eternal and not temporal. This earth is temporal. The new heaven, the new earth will be eternal. Its biology will be new in that nothing dies in the new heaven and new earth. Its ecology will be new. There is no need for the sea. The dependence upon water is very clear to us who live in this temporal place. We all need water. There's None of us who can live without water. And yet God has used that same water to judge the earth. So as beautiful as the seas are, as beautiful as they are to enjoy, there are still a reminder in the seas for us of judgment. God used the seas and the waters to judge the earth. And in the new heaven and the new earth, all of the reminders and all of the effects of sin will be gone. All of that is gone. There is no reminder of God's judgment. There is no reminder of sin anywhere. No vestige of that in any place. Is that exciting? I mean, I I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror and the vestige of sin is right there. You just have to look in your eyes, look in your face, know what your mind is thinking. Look out the window and you see the beauty of God and yet it is a beauty that is marred by sin. There will be none of that in the new heaven and new earth. I don't know about you, but I'm very weary in my 50 plus years of life seeing the constant effects of sin. It's wearying. I can't wait until it's over. I can't wait until sin is gone. The earth will be completely new. Some Bible interpreters think that God is simply going to remake this earth. He's going to kind of come in with a great construction project and renovate this earth and make it new-ish. But as I said last time, the language doesn't allow for that here. This will be completely new. New in every way. So the first feature is a new creation. That's what John says of the eternal state. The first feature of the eternal state is there's a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. So anticipate a new creation. Secondly, anticipate a new capital. Notice verse 2, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her Husband, here we know the name of this new capital city of the earth, and we know that it will be also a beautiful place. It's New Jerusalem. That's what it says in verse 2. It is described for us in further and greater detail, and we'll get to this next time here in chapter 21, beginning in verse 10. We get a description of this New Jerusalem, and it is an incredible place. It is an incredible place. It's nothing like anything we've ever seen. And yet here in verse 2, we just get a simple description that draws a picture in our mind that all of us understand. This city is adorned. It's made by God, coming from God, and adorned as a bride is adorned for her husband. That is simple language. It is wonderful language, and it is very picturesque language. 
as to the beauty of this place because it brings a picture into our mind. It doesn't matter what culture you grow up in. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. In a wedding, the bride always is a, a step above everybody else. It's her day. It's the day which she stands out. She's the one who is adorned, a cut above everybody else. And here in the eternal state, the city of God is the same way. There's no difference. The previous Jerusalem, you remember, and we have seen even today, it is filled with sin. Watch the news in our day. You look at history past and you see Jerusalem was constantly a place of corruption. It was erected by men for men Its religion today is corrupt. It is a spiritually bankrupt religion because it is a man-self-serving religion. But the new Jerusalem will be perfect. It's been made by God. And all who live there are true children of God. This is our home come down from heaven. So when Jesus said in John chapter 14, I go and prepare a place for you, this is where he's preparing. This is what he's preparing. This is the place. So all things are new. The new heaven, the new earth, there's a new capital, a new Jerusalem. It is beautiful and it is perfect in every way. Anticipate a new creation, anticipate a new capital. And third, we must anticipate a new communion, a new communion. This is where we left off last time and I want to Spend our time here this morning, a new communion. Notice verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. We can stop right there for a moment. We cannot miss the word behold. Don't miss that when you are reading it as if it's just a little literary device. This is in order to emphasize How amazing this fact is. What is so amazing, you say? It is amazing that God is dwelling again with men. Behold, the tabernacle of God is, that's a state of being, among men. That, folks, is absolutely amazing. Think about it with me for a moment. In the Garden of Eden, before the fall... Before Adam and Eve fell into sin, God had enjoyed full communion with his creation. The Bible tells us that Adam walked with God in the garden. He walked with God. He spoke with God. There was full communion with God. But then sin interrupted that communion. Once that happened, it was only by grace based upon the sacrifice through the shedding of blood, that man and God could have any fellowship together. And then when you get to the Old Testament, you see that it was only once a year, really, by one man as he, on the Day of Atonement, sacrificed for the nation of Israel, the high priest, that there could be some kind of communion, actual communion with God. And that only for a moment in the Holy of Holies. So in the Old Testament, it was on the grounds of the blood sacrifice. In the garden, God walked with God before sin. And then sin came, 
or Adam walked with God and then sin came and that communion was broken and God sacrificed the animal and sent them out of the garden by His grace so they wouldn't be fully confirmed in their unholiness. And God made a way for Him to have communion with man through the sacrifice. But that only really happened once a year. And God, by His grace, took up residence in the tabernacle in the temple of Israel, in the Holy of Holies. Exodus 25, verse 8, God says to Moses to tell the people, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God says, I desire to be with my people. I want to be there in communion. Have them build a sanctuary for me so that I can come and dwell there. It was God's desire to dwell with his chosen people. But we know the story. Once again, sin got in the way. People of Israel disobeyed God, and their sin brought upon them disaster. So by the time you read through the Old Testament, you get to the Old Testament prophets, and you get to Ezekiel chapter 9 and chapter 10, you see Ezekiel prophesying and, and, and showing the glory of God as God departs the temple. Because of the sin of the people, because of the disobedience of the people, God's presence lifts away and departs, and it signifies that God is not with His people anymore. So when you get to the New Testament, for God to draw near to sinful men in the person of Christ, how astounding that God would do that. And yet we find the words of John in The first chapter of John's gospel, and John says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is the word tabernacled. In other words, God desired to have fellowship with his creation, and so came Christ, the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. And yet, instead of communion with God, what happened? Man gave Christ the cross. We don't want to have communion with you, we said. But God, but God, through the sacrifice of His Son, even though it came at the hands of His own creation, God, through the sacrifice, completed redemption. God, through the sacrifice of His Son, at the hands of His own very creation, completed for us redemption that we never deserved. And with those who believe by faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, God can now have communion on a permanent basis. And so when you look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, and what you're seeing here is the purpose of God in creation finally being completely fulfilled. And we... We sit here through the words of John. We're called upon here as we read this. We're called upon to wonder at this amazing truth that God would, the creator of the earth, would come to the earth and dwell with us. John says, behold, uh, he hears the voice from the throne. Behold, check this out. This is absolutely stunningly amazing that God is among men. He will be among us, listen, forever. Sin won't be able to mess it up again. 
what will it look like, you say? What's it going to look like? What, what does it mean that God's going to dwell with us? What, what's that look like? What are the implications of that? Well, let me just say, it's not going to be like here. And there are several statements here that John gives us that describe it for us. Let's look at these together. First, first, it will be the actual place of God. The actual place of God. Notice verse 3. He says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he, that is God, shall dwell among them. Shall dwell among them. Currently, we have the Spirit in us. Currently, by faith, in Jesus Christ, Christ ascended to heaven, and Christ said to the disciples, don't, don't, don't be sad, I'm going to send the Helper. We have the Helper. But God the Father and God the Son are in the heavens. Now, I know what you're thinking. Isn't God everywhere? Yes, but, but at the same time, we have the Spirit. God, God isn't bound by the things we are bound by. Let your mind just wrestle with that and worship God in what He's saying. Currently, we have the Spirit. Christ is in the glories of heaven. God the Father in the glories of heaven. But all of that is going to change. Because when we are glorified, and when we enter into the eternal state, God will live with us. He shall dwell among us. He will not be like he was when it was with Israel, when God was simply with Israel in the temple. No, he will be among us. Notice the emphasis here at the end of verse 3. And God himself shall be among them. You know what that says to all of us? It says that all of us who know God through Christ will have, listen, continual access and communion with God in a tangible way, just like Adam had in the garden. This is paradise regained. See, right now we have access to God, right? We have communion with God. It's through prayer. We, we talk to God through prayer and God hears our prayers. But we hear in the new heaven and the new earth, it's like going to God in person, you're, you're sitting right there with God and, and God is hearing you and you're speaking to God just like Adam was walking with God in the cool of the day and talking with God. Here it's new. Our, our communion with Him will not be through prayers. It will be in person. I find it quite interesting in heaven. We, there's no need for prayer. People will say, well, why there's no need for prayer? Because God's there with us. I just go to God. I just walk up to God, talk to God. Here I bow on my knees and I talk to God. There I, I walk with God and I'm talking to God. Then notice what it says secondly in verse 3. It says, they shall be his people. God is among men and he shall dwell among them and they shall be his people. I call this the possession of God realized. The first is the person of God is is there. This is the possession of God is, is now realized. We shall be His people. In other words, all of the terms of the promises of God throughout all of Scripture made to His children will be realized because we actually are His people. 
All of that is realized. Because we are God's people, now that comes to fruition. And all of that is realized. The possession of God is now realized in His people. Not just Israel. Not just the church. No, now here in the eternal state, all of God's chosen are together as His people. And the inheritance of Christ is now realized. Notice what he says in verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. This is our full, glorious inheritance in Christ, fully realized. Because, why? We are the children of God. We are His people. That doesn't imply we're not His people now. But all of that, all that we have in Christ will be realized. And all of that is included in that terminology, they shall be His people. So first, you have God's presence among us. You have this realization of possession. And then third, notice, not only is God there and the realization of being His fully realized, but also there is the protection of God. We have the protection of God that is there. Notice verse 4, and He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. I think we could even state it this way. And God will wipe out all tears. That means there's no reason for crying. There's no reason for tears. Certainly we cry for a whole host of things now. We cry for things that are emotional difficulties. We cry for things that are painful difficulties in a physical way. And all of those kinds of things bring some kind of pain to us, and that's why we tend to cry. Uh, it's strange to me sometimes when people say they cry. Oh, I'm, I'm so happy I'm crying. I, 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 I don't know. I, I don't have that emotion, I guess. I get left out on that one. My wife says to me sometimes, do you understand what I mean? I, no. I don't. Sorry, I, I don't get it. I, I certainly cry. You've seen me cry. Sometimes I wonder why I'm crying. But there are things tied to our emotions. We, 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 we feel pain. We, we feel it physically. We feel it emotionally. There are strange things that are difficult to understand. And yet here the picture is that of our tender God and His protection of us in every way. It completely wipes out tears. That means that in the glories of the new Jerusalem on the new earth, there is nothing sad. Nothing sad. Nothing lacking, nothing wrong, nothing to cry about. We used to have a motto in our home with our kids when they were growing up. I would say to them, no whining. You know what? I'm thankful in heaven, in the glories of the new heaven, new earth, there will be nothing to whine about. God won't ever have to say that. No disappointment, no loss, no remorse, no trace of the vestige of the old creation. None of it. Only joy. It's incredible to me that anyone would ever say, boy, life's going to be so boring. If you think life in the new heaven, new earth is going to be boring, then you don't know Jesus Christ. God is there. God's presence is there. Our possession in Christ is there. Our our tender protector is there. And then notice John finally says, the, the provision of God is there. Verse 4, he wipes away every tear from our eyes and there shall no longer be death. There shall no longer be mourning or crying or pain. Don't you love that? Nobody ever dies. I don't have to go to a funeral anymore. I don't have to do a funeral anymore. 
I don't have to think about funerals anymore. And because there's no funerals, there's no death, there's no dying, guess what? There's no mourning. There's no more crying. There's nothing to agonize over, nothing sad. The older we get now on this earth, in this temporal life, the more the body just hurts. The harder and more painful it is to just get up in the morning. All that's gone in the eternal state. No more need for the right kind of mattress. No pain at all. I don't know about you, but I feel pain just this week from shoveling. God seems fit to have more for it. No more of that. I, I'm, I like that. No more of that in glory. Praise God. You say, why? Why will it be like this? Why is it going to be that way? Notice verse 4. Because the first things have passed away. The first things have passed away. Sin, death, sorrow, crying, pain, all of that's part of the first creation. All of that's part and, and caused by the sin and the fall. All of that was ushered in with all of the sin. But here in the new creation, old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. All things are new. Then verses 5 through 8 puts God's stamp of assuring approval on it all. Notice what he says. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, pay attention, marvel at this. I am making all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these are faithful and true. He said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. I'll give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Do you realize this? Everywhere else in the Scriptures, when it refers to those who know Jesus Christ by faith, we are called the children of God. And here is the first time you ever read that the children of God are now called sons. He will be our God, and we will be sons. One who is faithful and true. Tells John to write this. Write it down because this too is faithful and true. It is finished. It's done. It's complete. It's complete. Redemptive history is now taking its full course. The one who is outside of history. The Alpha and the Omega. The one in whom all knowledge must come. The Alpha and the Omega. The first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Letters simply imply language. Language implies knowledge. And think about it. Therefore, with, without Christ, there is no real knowledge. I am the Alpha and the Omega. In Him is all the essence of any kind of true knowledge. To reject Christ is to reject knowledge. To reject the truth. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. That is, He is outside of time. He's the one through whom all knowledge must come, and He's the one outside of time who is the creator of all time. He created it, and He will still be even outside of it when there is no time. Even the word eternity is a time-constraining terminology just for us to try to think about and get our minds wrapped around about foreverness so Christ is the focus and the climax of all history 
And alone he is the provision for eternal life. Notice verse 6, the end of verse 6 and verse 7. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. Christ is the source to satisfy the hearts of men, the thirsty soul. And those who know Christ by faith have a a new status, it says, verse 7. We are sons. We're not just servants. We're not just children of God. We are sons of God. Therefore, we share in the same standing with the Father as Christ. Does that amaze you? We share in the same standing with the Father as Christ has with the Father. We are sons of God. We're not God, we're not little gods, we're in no way deity, but we are in fact sons of God with all the inheritance of the Son of God. But not so for the Christ rejectors. It's not going to happen for them. Notice verse 8, but for the cowardly, cowardly, that's, that's, that, that really is the word for fearful, fearful. For the cowardly, those who who regarded believing in Jesus Christ something that was fearful for them to do. Someone who who carried their life about constantly, habitually saying to themselves, I'm fearful, I'm not going to believe. It's too great of a risk for me to believe upon Jesus Christ. That's what cowardly is. Those who have a life that is habitual in that sense and will not believe in Jesus Christ have no place in the new heaven and new earth. He says the unbelieving, unbelieving, those who, who follow the things seen rather than the things unseen, right? Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you would believe, you would see. These are the kind of people who say, I see it. It makes sense to me to see it. And because Jesus doesn't make sense, I can't see him. I'm not going to believe. That's the unbelieving. Those who carry their life that way will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. The abominable, he says. The abominable. The best description for that word is not the old Christmas tale movie of the snowman. No, the best description is is really ancient sexual religion. Religion that involved all kinds of sexual nonsense. Anything outside the realm of that, the abominable. I think homosexuality fits into this category today. They may not call it religion, but it is. And murderers, murderers, murderers. We know what that is, the taking of a life unjustly. That's murder. Those who are murderers by their very life. Immoral persons, sexual sin of any kind habitually, a life of just flat-out sexual immorality with no sense of any kind of desire to live in purity. Sorcerers, that's the word pharmakia. That really is the word for magical arts. Those who are devoted to talking to spirits and and, uh, trying to uh, elicit words from the dead and all that kind of Satanism. That's what sorcerers are. Devoted to magical arts. Then idolaters. Idolaters. You know what that is? That's just the the category that says, you know what? You worship anything in the place of God. 
anything that has greater value to you than the place of God in a habitual kind of way, that your life is that way, directed in those things, you're an idolater. Giving greater value to the stuff more than God. And all liars. Liars. People who tell life lies with their mouth and with their life. All liars. Being false to the truth. God says their part's not in the new heaven and new earth. Their part is in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And, of course, we looked into that in detail when we were in chapter 20, when after the thousand-year reign of the millennial kingdom, both death and Hades and Satan and the false prophet and the Antichrist were all thrown in the lake of fire along with all those who followed after them. All of those will spend eternity in the lake that burns. That's that's the really the original language. The second death. Continuous, eternal burning, yet never being consumed. It's like the man in Luke chapter 16 who says, just send Lazarus over with, with a little dip of water that I might cool from this burning. A non-consuming burning all the time. And there'll be this added suffering of the separation of God from you. I don't even, I can't even imagine what that is. And yet, that's what it will be. The sense in which God is no longer even around you in any kind of way. The hell that that is, along with all of the pain that goes with that. Why? Because you rejected Christ. What a contrast. What a contrast between the new heaven and new earth and those who will suffer the second death. John says, listen, we can, we can anticipate great things. We can anticipate wonderful things. Why? Because of Christ. Because of Christ. He is our hope of glory. It's all because of Christ. No matter where you look, it's all Christ. And so this morning we remember Christ. Do we come to this and we, we read about the glories of all this and none of this is glorious at all if Christ isn't right there in the center of it all? And so this morning we remember Christ. And we anticipate glory with Him. We anticipate all of the glory to be with Christ. And as we'll see, as we hear the description of this new Jerusalem in verses 10 and following, The best part about the the whole city itself is not the fact that the city is such a beautiful place. What makes the city so wonderful, it is a city that has no need, verse 23, of a sun, no need of a moon to shine upon it. Why? Because the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. What makes it so brilliant and so wonderful and such a, a great place for us to, to spend our eternal days is the reality that Jesus Christ and God are there. And so this morning we anticipate and remember Christ. Let's bow together and prepare our hearts for our time in the communion table. Lord, this morning we try as we may to understand what wonder you have for us how how can we put in even our words the great wonder that you have in store for those who are yours all we know is death all we know is sin all we know is temporalness 
We know your promises. We know that. We believe them. And through believing in your son, we have eternal life. But by experience, we don't know what that even entails. Here we read the description of what it will be like. And we, our minds are just going a thousand miles an hour trying to wonder and understand the, the reality of all of that. Lord, what amazes us is that you will be among us. You've promised, you've promised to take us to that place that you're preparing. And we know that promise is true and right and will come to pass. Lord, today we deal with the temporal life. We live as if we are dead to this temporal life. We live as if we are already living in eternity. And we strive to be obedient to the things of your word fail and we get back up and we dust ourselves off and we confess our sin you're faithful to forgive us we walk a little more and we find some victory and obedience and then we stumble again and we get up and we dust ourselves off and lord the road this side of glory is so hard and were it not for grace all of us would be destined for the lake of fire so this morning we we remember Christ. We set our mind on the things above. We keep seeking the things where Christ is. And these elements remind us of that. They remind us of the great price paid so that we could have all that you have promised. Lord, this morning as we think about these things, may we think about our own heart, the relationships we have with one another, Maybe the difficulties that are there that have been unresolved. Help us to resolve them quickly. So that your name would be glorified and honored in us. Forgive us for our foolishness and our lack of obedience to you. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. The perfect sacrifice. So that we might not die eternally. Thank you for life in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.